Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. And on today's show, we will do some suffering. That's not really true. (laughs) Uh, We're not going to suffer, but we're going to talk about suffering in honor of clay court season. The rallies will get longer. And one of our three, Rafael Nadal, will tell you in order to succeed on this surface, it is essential. Uh, You must suffer. But first... Uh, let's go over the Monte Carlo draw to kick off clay court season. Djokovic and Nadal are both in it. Nadal on the bottom half of the draw, Djokovic on the top half. So they can't possibly meet until a possible final. But Amy, um, takeaways from the draw. Yeah, it didn't look like the early rounds presented much of a problem. I think Djokovic has either Sinner or Ramos Vignolas. Um, you know, the, Ramos Vignolas is a great clay court player, but let's remember, guys, that this is Novak's home club, basically. This is where he practices, and the tournament officials said that the guys who live in Monte Carlo are allowed to stay at their homes. So it be, should be very comfortable. And of course, Nadal has won there, I think, 11 times. So it's almost like his home club. But but Sinner isn't. I mean, the Miami Open finalist is not particularly comfortable as a second well, round. Well, you know, I, I was thinking, like, which players would have more of an advantage? The guys that played in Miami and have played, you know, a big tournament, a master's level tournament more recently, or the guys that kind of stayed in Europe and started working on clay? I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, if it... If I were to guess, I would say the guys that were working on clay, but we'll see. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, so here's Sinner, had a nice run in Miami and playing well. Of course, he's in ascent and we're going to see. Remember, he got to the quarters of Roland Garros just last fall. So um, curious to see how he does playing Novak. It's, it's great, to, the, the Monte Carlness of, of Nadal. You, you, got the, you got the club champ and the club member. Uh, who's also won it some too. So they're each very, very familiar with that venue. And there's a real intimacy to that venue that people like. And uh, kind of interesting, of course, the big start of the European clay. I mean, it's just, uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how Novak is. Neither he nor Nadal has played in a while. So I'm, I'm fascinated. The, the highest seed in Djokovic's quarter is Alexander Zverev, who won Acapulco a couple weeks back, but then had a surprising first-round loss in Miami. I think Clay is Zverev's best surface. That's my personal opinion. Uh, Nadal has, as you said, a really what looks like a cushy section, and his seed is uh, Andre Rublev opposite him, who I just feel like that would be straightforward if if they met on a clay court. but yeah, you know, I, I'm not really trusting Djokovic or Nadal these days at the start of a long layoff as they begin their rounding into form before a major. Like the results have not been that consistent in this spot as of late. Well, and then we also have the whole world we live in and so of the, 
of the pandemic still, and even though things are getting better in some ways, this the sequencing of how the year goes and how players build upon results and confidence and training is so out of whack because some players did play Miami and then they're surf they're coming back, they're coming to Europe, but then there's the stressful aspect of the pandemic. So I think in most situations say, well, gee, having played Miami, doesn't matter what the surface, your tournament tough and let's go on to Monte Carlo. But now you're right. Some of these players have been training more on clay. So maybe does that help them? And it's just, it's going to be very, mm -hmm. very interesting. <coughs> well, as a, as a fan, I would admit that I want to see Sinner Djokovic as a, as a spectator. I want to see him trade backhands. That's what I want to see. I mean, how would we compare the Djokovic and the Sinner backhand right now? I think, I think Yannick Sinner's backhand, give it a couple years and it'll be one of the most, one of the best ground strokes on tour and the best backhand on tour. Well, he's one of the, he's the young Turk in the law firm, isn't he? I mean, he gets so much racket head speed and it's kind of like a, a new iteration of the software because you see how hard he hits it and how flat and obviously the, the likes of Agassi and Djokovic have led to Sinner's progress with it. What he, he, the shot he knows he needs to hit if he wants to thrive in pro tennis. I mean, they, they raise the bar. So now I think he's still, it's still kind of raw. It's still coming together. Yeah, I'm I not agree. sure. I'm not sure that it, Sinner will be the one he plays. It might be Ramos Vignolas. I, I happened to catch his match last night against uh, Pablo Carrera Busta. Uh, PCB pulled the match out in the final points in a tiebreaker, but both of them looked really good. It was the classic Spanish clay court thing going on. They were both finding their rhythm. Um, good, good depth on, on both wings. Um, so Sinner coming back from Miami and he's still young and inexperienced. I'm not sure that matchup is what you're going to get. Yeah, that's, uh, that's viable. I mean, we got to think that, um, that's a 50, 50 match. And so, uh, but then again, you mentioning the two Spaniards meeting on claiming, I think, Gil, that's our, that's our segue, isn't it? Yeah. I just also want to respond though amy you you asked earlier on right is it better to come off uh, a run at the miami masters or is it better to just be chilling in in uh, monaco practicing on these courts mm -hmm. i would i would say it's definitely not best if you made a deep run in marbella or a deep run in sardina you know that that's where you're looking at fatigue possibly coming into play but good point Right. Miami would be two weeks ago instead of one week ago. So uh, that's where I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, favor Albert Ramos Vinolas based on that position. But, but, it, but it is it is a short hop, though, from Marbella to um, Bea to um, Monaco <laughs> or it's actually the tournament is in France. Um, but anyway, um, what, what's funny, you guys, just a little personal aside, is that I was at Monte Carlo the last time that this tournament was played in 2019, and I got to hit on the courts. And um, what, what really struck me was that clay is not a monolith. That surface in that location had a different bounce, a different feel, a different everything than other clay surfaces that I played on. So, um, you know, we, when we speak of clay and we speak of these tournaments, we shouldn't act like all clay is created equal. 
Oh no, there's absolutely, there's Monte Carlo and there's Rome. And then once upon a time in the spring, there was Hamburg, which is very overcast. So uh, also that's, that's a neat thing about clay. I mean, the, how, how weather affects the bounce of the ball and the surface, no other, mm -hmm. no other surface is like that. So there's yeah. a texture to it. That's very unique. Nonetheless, nonetheless, there will be long rallies. Yes. Yeah, so was it windy, Amy? No, no. It, it, what it was was humid um, and cool, uh, not freezing or anything like that. Um, it, the, the conditions were, for me, pretty much perfect because the day that I hit, it was not overly sunny and the light was very ambient. So um, it, the conditions that day were pretty slow. Yeah. Well, uh, it is considered one of the slower clay courts on the tour. Uh, I do think of it as, as very windy. Uh, for the most part. So you must have, have gotten a good day. Uh, but let's talk about what this surface brings. Longer rallies generally on these kinds of slow surfaces. And uh, Rafa Nadal has, uh, has won it 11 times. Nadal, after the 2013 French Open, um, has a quote after he beat Djokovic. And he said, I learned during all my career to enjoy suffering. And that is what he, one of the things that he likens his clay success to. And it's one of the buzzwords with Nadal that you'll hear all the time from him. So we've poked around with this uh, on this show, but we want to take a deep dive into this concept around suffering on the tennis court. Joel, how do you decipher that word as it pertains to uh, an asset for a tennis player? You're starting me off so I can hit a few cross court and come in and you'll pass me. Because I think <laughs> suffering, I, I, talked to, uh, I talked to your coach, Gil, a while ago, Chris Lewitt, who was one of your coaches, and we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more. And he explained to me the qualities of process that define the suffering I find valuable. Hard work, persistence, focus. I think that's pretty good. I like that. I think, though, as a mindset towards a game, I'm not, I don't get it. I mean, I'm kind of, I, and I talked about it with some, pros I know. And I think suffering, real life suffering, I get it. But in tennis, I, I think there's, I think using that as like a, a dichotomy between either like suffer, feel pain, or be a happy hedonist. You know, it, it's called work. It's called a game. Do you think, does Roger Federer suffer? Did Martina Navratilova suffer? Rod Laver, Ken Rosewall? I know what Rafa is up to as a, as a process, suffering from losses I get, you know, it's like the pain of a loss of an outcome, but in the process, I don't know, why don't, uh, before I continue, before I rant excessively and come up with another anecdote, why don't you two share your perspectives on it as well? Well, it's funny because in that match that I caught last night, uh, they interviewed Pablo Carreno Busta after his win. And he said to make a final on clay, you do have to suffer a little bit. But I didn't necessarily take that to mean long grinding rallies. I, I feel like it was almost mental what he was talking about. So um, generally my perspective, since I've seen a lot of data on this and, and very recent data is that the rallies on clay are, the reality of it is that the length of the rally is not that different than other surfaces, believe it or not. And so um, there's got to be something more to it. Um, you know, clay is a surface I find to be a major grind because 
you have to construct points differently. And, and maybe that's the element of suffering. But I know that in terms of rally length, um, it, it's a myth that the rallies are, that you have more longer rallies. I like this. Let me, before you get to more of the skill, um, I think what I see, and I'm glad you mentioned about playing on clay, it made me think of kind of a civilians on clay. The rallies may not be much longer, but the work required from the body to generate racket head speed. I mean, okay, we Americans, we play a lot on hard courts. The surface is aiding our ability to generate racket head speed. I grew up on very fast hard courts. So it's kind of like playing bumper pull. Mm. So then I did not grow up in the golden age of racket acceleration and torque. So when you look at the work involved, so in example, if you took, you know, recreational matches on clay, European clay compared to America, and you, and you measured the kind of the, the, the work that has to be done to generate speed and pace and spin, that's different because the ball is slowing more. So you have to do, so maybe that's what involves the, the work and the suffering. And Gil, since you're our, uh, you're our resident Spanish-raised player, Dave Ferrer is your guy, <laughs> Chris Lewitt is your guy. So why don't you give us a little, uh, a little peek into what suffering is or isn't? First of all, Joel, that's a fantastic point because when the ball's coming slower, you do need to swing faster and harder. Uh, and you also need to move your feet more. If the Everything. ball's not coming to you quite as, as well, you need to make more adjustments. If the ball doesn't bounce consistently, you better move your feet more. Um, if the ball bounces higher, you might be further behind the baseline in order to let it drop into your strike zone. So there are a lot of little micro adjustments that in the big picture lead to having to do harder work on clay. But I always looked at it like this. Um, some people refuse to suffer. Some people would rather just not. Um, and sometimes that might involve using bad shot selection on the court when, because you want the point to end because you start to physically feel strained. I think there's mm -hmm. another group of people who don't like to suffer, but will actually push through it and learn how to tolerate it, a certain kind of pain tolerance. Then I think there's a third group of people who genuinely love the feeling of um, pain in their legs and their lungs feeling like ash. And to them, that is part of tennis and they enjoy that. And I think someone like Rafa Nadal, if, if you really look at his quote, he says he loves it, right? So it, it's like, it sounds contradictory, suffer, love it. That doesn't seem right. But I think for some people, that's what it is. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. See, I see this, I see it as a false dichotomy. I mean, I see it as a false, as a straw man dichotomy designed to validate a way of teaching the game that was originally inspired by Louis Bruguera, Sergi's father, yep. who loved Bjorn Borg, and, 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 and pretty much focused on the fu a fundamental premise of tennis, which is to get the ball on the court again and again and again. I'm talking about a lifetime game. I'm also talking about not just, um, not just world-class players, but about the whole game overall. I mean, 
So if you look at those things, like where do you put Roger Federer? Suffer, suffer. I mean, it, it doesn't mean I'm not opting to suffer because I'm not, you know, I'm just because I'm not bailing out of the point doesn't mean, you know, I'm going to suffer and hit another ball. It's called the work. It's called the work I put in that allows me to achieve a shot tolerance. And of course, it's not always, it's not hedonistic. It's not like I'm walking around eating an ice cream cone, but I just think for a game, I mean, I, I'm going to use an anecdote. I'm going to share an anecdote from the world of acting. There are these two actors, Dustin Hoffman, Laurence Olivier, and they were making the movie Marathon Man. And Dustin Hoffman's character was a runner. That was his, his hobby. And Dustin Hoffman, and, and there was a whole, there's a Nazi backstory, the whole bunch of things. So they're acting on the movie and Dustin Hoffman is into the character and the character had some sleep deprivation and all this stuff. And Dustin Hoffman shows up to work one day. He says, I've been, I've been digging into this character. You know, I haven't slept and I'm, I'm feeling it. You know, it's like he was feeling the whole pain of the character. And Lawrence Olivia said, well, dear boy, why don't you try acting? It's called acting. I mean, it's yeah. like better. It's, it's almost as if, it's almost as if, and it has nothing to do with who's better or not. It's almost like Federer would say to Nadal, yeah, I get that. That's important. But why don't you call it playing tennis? Playing tennis, not working tennis. Hmm. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know. You know, someone needs to ask Roger Federer about suffering. I don't think that, I don't think he does it on the court much. I think he probably does it off the court in his training. I think mm -hmm. anyone... Well, work, um, I get, like I said, the, the hard work and, you know, and, and these guys, we all know all these pros. But, uh, okay, and are they having fun? I mean, is it, is it a nice feeling to push your body to the limit? It generally isn't. Right, but, but to view it, I mean, I guess I'm speaking as someone who knows non-tennis suffering and what, real, what suffering means in life. And I'm not, I don't want to get overly theological here. Okay. But what, suffer, what is suffer? And this is a game, Rod. I mean, sure, of course, the work, the work, the the pain of it, but suffer. I mean, it'd be interesting. God, it'd be interesting. We should get like a, we should get like people from different religions to address <laughs> this for us to speak of of what that all means to to really suffer. And I get it with Nadal. I mean, I love Nadal, and I love Jimmy Connors, and these guys are the workhorses, competitors, tenacious warriors of the game. But to view it as suffering also from a view of taking a lifetime longevity mode of playing. For example, I would never urge a non-pro to view that they need to suffer so they could win the men's 45 sectional championships. That doesn't mean they should be a hedonist. That doesn't mean they shouldn't hit extra practice serves or, or do drills, but is that is that suffering? Well, I think uh, maybe a better term is um willing to engage in an element of delayed gratification where you're you're training hard and it's not pleasant and you don't enjoy it but boy does it feel good when you get into the match and you're in a, a tough spot or you're in a long match and you realize that the preparation that you've done off the court um, has made you feel not as bad as you possibly could. I love that, the, the layer yeah. of gratification, because you know, yeah, I put in the work, yeah, eight balls, 10 balls, it's all good. I don't feel the need to bail out. Now it's three all in the third set. I'm all right. I'm all right. And that's, you know, that's like the Australian goal, like Roy Emerson said, you want to, can you feel as fresh in the fifth set as you did in the first? And that comes from work. I, I, this is great. I, and I completely respect the, uh, 
the thought that that it might it might be the wrong word. Um, but let me take a different angle at this. Sometimes even on the on the match court, you're going to be past your fitness limit. It's just not going to matter, yes. right? It, it's yes. always somewhere. So if I take yes. the most famous example of uh, an instance where two of our three, Nadal and Djokovic were just, it was a day that, boy, uh, neither of them wanted to lose. And I'm thinking of the 2012 Australian Open final. And that match embodies what Nadal would call suffering for sure. If either of those players didn't have uh, a willingness to really feel a lot of pain on the court, uh, it wouldn't have lasted six hours. Do we agree with that? Yeah. Well, that's right. I knew, I knew you're headed to that one. That's right. A nearly six hour slam match where neither could stand during the awards. And I think that was pretty amazing. I mean, just incredible. You're right. And they had put in the effort that allowed them to have the opportunity to suffer in competition, you know, to put in it because if they hadn't put in, there's no way they could have done that if they hadn't each been tremendous at their training and practice and fitness and off court. And the whole thing, remember, Amy, I think you shared this a few weeks ago in Nadal's uh, television viewing pattern where he plays the point. And then yeah, he, he gets and on the treadmill and then when the ball's dead, he walks. And when it's live, he just gives it everything he can and throughout an entire match. Right. And so yeah. this whole thing, you're right, of finding of, of work. And I guess I, I liked Amy's thing of this lay gratification. And of course, there's going to be pain. I think kind of the, the, this, the message around suffer as if that's the, the pinnacle word I guess that I guess I just again like I come back I come back to this being this is a game it reminds me of a friend I was playing with one day and he was getting frustrated at his tennis and I walked over to him I said all right hey I didn't say let's work tennis Thursday afternoon you know I mean Amy you're right. a mom you yes. know your kids, there's yeah. time to work there's time for play and I, I'm not saying and I'm not saying uh pro tennis or any tennis is a sandbox and just laugh and La la la. Believe me, believe me. If you play, if you watched me play a match, you would know that. I mean, I don't talk. I'm like a monk. So. Need to play and let it come out. Cause there's also like with Rafa, there's a joy he brings to competition too. It's, it's not the joy of being at a birthday party, but it's the joy, the joy of competition, the joy of effort. Right. And, and that, that does come down a lot to uh, what we're talking about, about that gratification at the end. Uh, so, so the work you put in um, does kind of pay off. And, and that's probably not true for a lot of other types of suffering, if we're really delving into to, to what the word means. But let's, uh, let's get into kind of the recreational side. And um, I, I also want to tell a story, which I've not told to, I, I haven't told this to many people, actually. Uh, I, after the first day at Chris Lewitt Tennis Academy, and, you know, I was pretty young, but I cried and I was like, I can't do that every day uh, because, you know, it's a, it's a long day with two fitness blocks. And I was just like, no, that was way too hard. I definitely can't do that. Um, and I won't, you know, I just didn't think I could actually, you know, ultimately doing it and my body got used to it, which is what happens. And you really just got to get through the first week, which is really, really difficult. And it gets easier after that. 
after doing something that you're so sure that you can't do, there's like no better feeling in the world. And I credit a lot. I credit tennis in a lot of ways, really teaching me what hard work is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like Joel said, I'm a mom. Um, so therefore I should have perspective, but I too have left the court in tears and, you know, it, it does take on a, a um, metaphoric significance, you know, this is a metaphor for my life and this can teach me things that are, there are parallels in life. And, um, you know, it reminds me just uh, a few months ago, I, my coach was watching me play points and he said, you know, what happened to you on that point? You just sort of fizzled. And I said, actually, I was working so hard and running so hard that I felt like I was going to throw up. And he said, well, you need to train so that you don't feel that way, you know, start running, start, start doing this. So I think that, you know, is, um, that teaches you, you know, just like you said, Gil, um, there are parallels. Well, and the gratification part, I think I want to point out is not, it's not just the, I think a way to conduct one's attitude to the match. There's the gratification, obviously, of, of, of the outcome at the end of the match, but throughout the match, we find signs of gratification. I think like Nadal does too. They're called points, whether it's, whether yeah. it's, whether it's the point we win, which should always be a form of a positive gratification, not, oh God, can't believe I won the point with that shot. You know, it's, it's interesting the signals people send to themselves about how they don't always reward themselves emotionally, attitudinally. You know, oh my God, I got away with that one. It's like, no, you won the point. And then, yeah. and then, the, and then, and then there are occasional points where, wow, that was a really good point, and they really came up with something. So okay, and then, and then there's the sliver, the sliver that we all know, we all know of the one. Like I know some shots I'll miss, and I'll think, oh my God, all those lessons. I took all those lessons, and I missed that one again. <laughs> the, the the familiar butcher shot, which I'm not going to reveal in this show. But uh, and and how? So to me, I guess. If it's suffering, if it's in the, again, if it's in the back of your head out there, that's fine. But along the way, along the way, there needs to be the positive, the positive mentality, the positive aspect of, okay, next point, on to the next point, instead of, ugh, ugh, instead of, this is painful. Yeah, it, tennis certainly shouldn't be like that. Is there a difference between physical suffering and mental suffering, and is one a lot more tolerable or you know, one is a lot more fixable in the short term. Uh huh. Mental but, is a but, lot more fixable in the short term. Physical, physical will then affect. You know, physical is the core of it. I mean, it's like you guys live in far more drastic weather than I do on the East Coast. I mean, I think Amy, didn't you tell me about a match you played a few months ago? It was like a hundred. I mean, a, a tournament you were playing last year. Something is really hot and just unbelievable yeah yeah that was uh they made us play indoors in the middle of the summer at a, a club that didn't have air conditioning <laughs> oh no and that it was a tournament we were all packed in there and it was like 100 degrees and people were passing out and the ambulance was called and oh uh, but for me um the mental and the physical are are all in the tactical suffering whatever it's all tied together it's like a, a big um mishmash um so it, it's interesting that you guys sort of categorize you know oh, your... yeah they affect well no i see how they become the circle of things i'll tell think... you why i categorize though i want to say why i categorize because i don't 
believe in mental suffering. I really only believe in physical suffering. I think the whole point is that I don't think Nadal is suffering mentally when he's suffering physically. I think he feels like he's at home. This is, you know, this is his office uh, that, you know, that's the distinction. Oh, see, it's funny. See, I, I see, I see them connected, but I think of the physical, the physical is going, the mental is pretty much gonna, it's like, it's gonna cascade. The mental is control. See, to me, the mental is, is, is massively controllable. Ment is yeah. massively controllable. And therefore, you know, not, you're not gonna be at the mercy of it. But the physical, the times when I think of matches where I've like tired and then, and then everything starts to kind of disintegrate from there, the shot selection, the bailing out, the energy, you know, the, the, the hand is slipping off the grip, you know, it's just, it's just like a, it feels like in a dance marathon. Mm -hmm. As we've been doing this show, I think there have been a couple times where we've thought to ourselves, well, this would be a really good question to ask one of the three, but this, this conversation is one of the strongest examples of that for me. I would love to see what Roger Federer thinks of Nadal's suffering. Uh, and I would love to say, I would love to ask Roger, the way Nadal describes suffering on the court, do you have that? Do you do that? And well, I'm not really sure what his answer to, would be. I think the way to do it would be to not mention Nadal. It's like, I, I don't know, Amy, you're the, you're, you're the social scientist. So help me with this. It's yeah, how would we ask that? Unaided, the unaided thing, which is a, uh, hello, Mr. Three, suffering is a concept often discussed in tennis, discuss. You know, you just kind of lay it out there like a, okay. like, a, like a hand feed and then let them each give their kind of like verbiage on it. I don't know. What do you think, Amy? I mean, I, I've mentioned this on the show a few times that I did get to ask Federer about rally length and if, you know, his thoughts basically on playing longer points. And, you know, his answer was that he doesn't like to play longer points. So maybe for him, a long point on clay is not fun, but the way he ended it is like so money because he says, but you have to be willing to do it. So in other words, you have to override what your preference is with an all out willingness to do that. So I, I think what he was saying was that's how he kind of conquered that. Well, and that makes total sense given his developmental path. I mean, we've spread a lot about the portrait of the young Roger and the players he liked in the environment he was in and his, his sense of how he wanted to go about crafting a style. So you got one guy in, in, in Roger who probably had to learn to play longer points and Rafa who had to learn how to play shorter points as he yep. advanced in his career. All right, well, hopefully you didn't do too much suffering as you listen to this episode of three, but that'll do it. Make sure if you're watching on YouTube that you leave the video a like. If you have anything good to say, please don't hesitate to share in the comments section. We are available on all podcast platforms and it's a huge help if you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And we will see you next time on the next episode of three.